have a bit of a confession to make today, Harrison. Okay. I am not the most Laudato see of Catholics. Right. And what I mean you're, by you're that more is not Laudato no. Laudato no, right? You know, yeah. uh, and it's not that like I disagree with anything in the document. No, not at all. But just this is with with regards to my own personal moral failing. Mm-hmm. Like I buy stuff, I throw it away. I don't care. Right. You know, I waste things all the time. Recycling, I don't care. Like, I know that recycling is a relatively easy and responsible thing to do, but I just, I'm bad, okay? But there is one thing that bothers me. I was grabbing some water uh, from my rectory to uh, make sure that hopefully Nick doesn't have as many sounds to, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cut out. Uh, Nick, leave those in. That's important for the content. Um, and I realized there's just the tiniest, tiniest chip on this glass. Mm-hmm. And here's what I'm struggling with, because most of the glass is fine. Most of the glass is perfectly fine. I'm still drinking water out of it because I'm aware of where that chip is. But I know that if I don't, if I don't take this glass out to pasture, you know, if I don't take it out into the cornfield and, and kill it, that yep. one day it will hurt me. Right. One day it will cut my lip and just ruin my day. Right. But something about throwing away... A glass like just really bothers me it feels <laughs> more than anything else like such a waste and I don't know why so what you're telling me is you are attached to the glass man you know what the thing is I'm it sounds not like a spiritual issue it, I, I mean possibly this is why I'm bringing it to you okay uh, as my uh, <laughs> uh, interim spiritual director uh, because like I don't care about this glass usually I've got a thousand more like it mm-hmm. but the I, I'm just imagining myself just just letting it go into the trash can and part of that just i find repulsive so i think i know a way that can make this easier for you okay you can make a slideshow of all the times you've used that particular glass and and in the Mm. background you can have sarah mclaughlin's i will remember you playing it will let you get all your tears out get get the emotions out get the motions running and then you can let it go that's that's great i think that'll be a good way of taking care of my emotional health which is a very important thing Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm still trying to figure out what's the attachment. Maybe it's because it's, it's heavy, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you're always careful when you're holding glasses, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you're, if you're holding a plastic mug or whatever, or a coffee you got from, you know, McDonald's or whatever, you don't care so much about it. In fact, in my car, there are not quite hundreds, but at least, you know, 20 or so empty mm-hmm. plastic containers mm-hmm. and I don't care about them mm-hmm. you know I'm okay with just like throwing them everywhere but like the glass yeah. it's precious and maybe it's because like as a child I dropped a glass and my parents freaked out maybe it's something about that that's, so it's that's a family of origin trauma. issue yeah this is a okay. core wound maybe yeah yeah see this is productive <laughs> we're getting down to the core of this <laughs> because I think that's what it is because the idea if I if I I know at one point in time if I throw this glass away it's gonna break mm-hmm and shatter, and then somehow my parents were disappointed in me. I think that's right. that's the fear. Right. Yeah. Wow. I think it's fair. Wow. But now that what you a now that you've given word to it, yeah, you are now free of the attachment, and you can just throw it away. You know what? It's definitely helped. It's definitely helped. I, I appreciate that. And hopefully, we can help you all become more free, free for the work of the Lord, free from attachments. In this episode of. Clerically Speaking. Hello, I'm Father Anthony Sharapa, and welcome to Clerically Speaking. And I'm Father Harrison. Huh. So, I've had a week. Yeah, it (laughs) sounds like it. So, I mean, a few things. So, first, I'm in the last days of my book being due to Pauline Press. Uh, So, I'm spending every free minute working on this. And it's, it's, it is... uh, Writing really is a crucifixion because, like, you're like, this is this is working, this is working. Oh no, wait, this sucks. Nope, throw it out. Nope, delete, or cut it, put it into like a little document, throw it over there, whatever, blah blah. blah. So I'm trying, and that's due at the end of the month here, so mm-hmm. June 30th. So I got a week left. Um, and then I got a call from my bishop last Tuesday. Oh, yeah. You haven't talked about this yet. No. This is what I'm talking about. Like, this has been a week. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That feels like forever ago. Well, time is a flat circle and doesn't actually exist. So. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, I was doing spiritual direction with someone, and I have, when I do, my phone's on do not disturb, and it started buzzing, which tells me someone's trying to get through. Right. Someone has called you more than once. Mm-hmm. And it's the bishop. And so, I said, can you go out? It's probably important. And he goes, um, I want you to consider a move. 
I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, like what? Like a dance move? Like you heard about the swing dancing episode? You yes. you wanna you wanna learn swing dancing? Okay, fine. That makes yeah. sense. Uh, he goes, no, no, yeah, I want you to consider being moved to Nanaimo to St. Peter's Parish, uh, and to be pastor there starting August first. And I mean, it's really interesting. He he said, I want you to consider this. He didn't say you're going there. Right. I mean, he could. He could. <laughs> he could do this. <laughs> and I was, he was like, because we we're going back and forth, and I'm like, he goes, you're really surprised by this. I said, Bishop, this was not on my radar at all. Like, not even cl- not even a little blip. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I knew there were stuff going on in the diocese with personnel stuff, and I knew there were some openings, but I just didn't foresee myself being moved. Yeah. And so, you know, I prayed about it for a little bit, and I, but I've always had this principle as a priest that if my bishop asks me something for the good of my diocese, I should, my, my only answer can be yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, for the good of the diocese. Obviously, all the uh, moral uprightness stuff being, uh, and, you know, he's, I, if he's saying, well, for the good of the diocese, we need a million dollars, you need to go steal that for me, you know, obviously that would be a no. Right, that, right, right. Okay, you know, I mean, I mean, duh. But... So that's always been a principle of mine, right? And because in obedience is found freedom. So I said, yes. So I'm moving in five weeks. Yeah. So, to a whole new world. Yeah. So it was a shock. A new part of Canada. That's right. Uh, I'm 10 minutes away from an airport. Which Look doesn't, at you. doesn't matter right now, but right. one day. <laughs> right, because you can't go anywhere anyway. I can't, really, I can't go to the States. Like, I'm really, I'm pretty sure the border is going to be closed all summer, which means I can't go to Nick and Riley's wedding, which really sucks. That does. That is, that that, is a that, sad. That is, like, I'm actually really sad about that. But anyway, so, yeah, so I'm being, I've been moved to St. Peter's Parish in Nanaimo, which is one of our larger parishes in the diocese. About a, you know, our diocese is not huge, so a parish with 1,000 registered households is very large for us. And I'll be there by myself. And, and I mean, like, I was sad. Like, I, I mentioned it to people on the weekend, and we have our mass tonight and Friday still, too. I'm sure the word's gotten out by now, but uh, I have. it's weird having five masses to, over a week because ha- we only have people coming once a week right now. Right, yeah. So it's weird to get the word out that way. But anyway, so I'm um, – so I've been telling people – a lot of people are shocked, uh, as I was. Like, especially the 90 mass, you can like, hear the gasps. So, which is, you know, endearing, though, too. You're like, oh, you care. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You didn't hear, like, cheers. Like, yay, mother's Woo, in the... Get out of here, you <laughs> jerk. Yeah. Um, I think after the move, we'll do an episode on priestly moves. I think that would be a good thing to do. But yeah. I, need to, I need to go through it first, especially because it's my first time being moved as a pastor in one place to being a pastor of another. Before that, sure. I was an associate moving to here, which is different. Uh, but, um, yeah, being a going from one place as a pastor to another is a very different reality. But this is, so I'm sad to leave because I was just starting, it takes you about two years to really get a good vision of where you want to move forward with your parish. Sure. My secretary is heartbroken. She's very sad, which is nice. I mean, we work well together. So that's, and then um, uh, uh, what I, but at the same time, I'm also really excited because one of my, one of the things that they're giving to me when I go to Nanaimo it's a it's a lot it's a city for the island which is 150,000 people so I'm in urban area again I, ha- I have a Wendy's I have two Wendy's this is a big deal this is a big deal there's but there's still no spicy nugs oh really then they, they never came to Canada at least not on the island it's very weird to me that's sad I get but I, still but still some Wendy's is better than no Wendy's yes exactly so um but in all seriousness the the real exciting thing about this move is we have a university about three blocks from the parish Oh. And this university has about twelve to 14,000 students on campus, 20,000 okay. students total with online learning. And there's no Catholic chaplaincy there yet. 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 Yay! So one of my, <laughs> one of my jobs is to go and try to – and now it's been hard. The, the university there really wants um, – they just want the Catholics to be part of the Christian club. Ah, uh, and not have. But a you second, say no. We are very there. different. But if we can't, so if we can't get something established there, I will just get something started at the parish. You know, sure. 
who needs all that stuff, right? Um, right. But I'm really excited because I love young adult ministry. So university young adult ministry is something I've wanted to do for a very long time, and I finally get to do it. So I'm, or at least in this context now as a pastor, so I'm really, really excited for that. And, you know, it's going to be a different parish, new challenges, new struggles, a lot more things to do. So, yeah, I'm moving, yeah. which is weird. Yep. And I was... It's funny, like, I, I thought I'd get emotional on the weekend, but I didn't because, A, I'm so tired because I haven't slept well for, like, the last three weeks. And, B, I was just emotionally drained by the weekend that I had nothing sure. left in the tank. So, yeah. yeah. So, if you start just openly weeping during this podcast, we'll know why. It's probably because of something you said. I mean, likely, but uh, we've done enough of these episodes where I doubt anything I could say could totally shock you or move you to tears usually well no i hide the tears pretty good because a lot of things you say move me to sadness Mm, okay well you know what i'm gonna take this as a personal challenge and uh i'm really excited i don't know uh, yeah 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 yeah, so harrison you're moving to a new place and we're moving to our next segment the summa tweetologica summa tweetologica summa tweetologica I want to start with the best tweet I've seen in a long time. And I love it because it, it both says something true, but it does so in a very, a very biting kind of spicy way, which I really appreciate. This is from, look at this graph at SD Catholic. And this person oh, tweets. This one, yeah. Yeah. So do I have to actually enter seminary for all the women to suddenly become super interested in me? Or can I just be like, well, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I love this so much. So uh, this is, I mean, talking about a little bit of a, of a niche culture, right? Uh, like in Catholic circles, when you've got all these Catholics together, uh, it's, it's a different kind of culture than the wider culture. And even within the, the Catholic culture, there's like the niche culture of like people who really take vocation seriously and especially among young people who are discerning this actively and a thing can happen and i've seen it happen is that you know a a, a young man can very genuinely begin thinking and feeling his heart moved toward seminary towards the priesthood and he begins to tell people and he begins to notice that he's getting a lot of praise for doing this you know, he's getting a lot of attention for doing this. And he doesn't have to completely commit yet because he's still discerning. And then then all of a sudden, maybe he's getting even more attention from women about this. And this person can begin to enjoy that and even continually postpone his serious discernment because he's enjoying this attention. And this is a thing that does indeed happen. It can really throw off the whole discernment thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah. And I mean, I, there's all sorts of reasons why that may happen, or why a woman may find woman may find a man more attractive who is thinking about entering seminary for both good reasons and not so good reasons, right? Okay, but this just affirms my my newer policy that you really, I really think you should hes- you should be careful about who you choose to talk about discernment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to, like, I've definitely done a 180 on this because before I was all for the, you know, you have a big retreat at Franciscan or wherever, and then someone says, hey, if you're thinking about discerning the priesthood, stand up, and everyone claps for them. And part of me was like, oh, that's good because that's we're normalizing discernment, right? We're giving these people encouragement. Mm-hmm. But now I'm more like, you know what, that's not helpful. Or, or too much of that can be unhelpful, maybe I should say. Mm-hmm. Because discernment, what God is calling you to, is a very precious and very holy thing. Mm-hmm. And also a, a very vulnerable place, if you're really honest about it. Right. So I think, you know, you should talk to people about it, but to trusted people, to good spiritual friends, to priests or religious, um, as to keep safe and foster what may be a genuine call, right? Right. Because um, you also have... <laughs> 
and I'm guilty of somehow uh, participating in this as well, not personally, but like, you know, you have someone who makes this big um, testimony that, yeah, I'm going to seminary, or I'm really thinking about the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And then they find out their call is not to the priesthood mm-hmm. uh, or to married life, and they start dating someone, and all of a sudden, like the community feels betrayed right. uh, by this person, which isn't fair. Isn't fair to anybody, right? You know, uh, like it's good that this person found their vocation to married life. That's a great thing. Right. But sometimes, the, the the parish culture doesn't quite grasp that. So, um, uh, I, this tweet makes a really good point, but in a really kind of biting way, which I find entertaining. Yeah, I, I had a really good laugh at that because, yeah, it's it's i think we've mentioned it before how even like when you're in seminary you know mm-hmm. sometimes you know you, you meet people in parishes and stuff like that and girls like i've seen it a couple times where a couple girls have been really interested in a guy who's in seminary mm-hmm. right so it, it's it's it it is kind of funny but it, i'm kind of I'm kind of almost want to scheme for him uh wait would you would go on <laughs> what our podcast has had success before yeah at getting people together. That's true. We've also, I think we've helped uh, move people towards seminary as well. That's right. That's you right. Know? That's right. We've, hel- we've helped people consider religious life. Yeah. So yeah. why can't we help him with his marriage vocation? I mean, I mean, possibly. Yeah, sure. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying at, at SD Catholic, yeah. I don't know if you're a great person or a creeper, but you, hey, you've met him. You met him at SLS. We, I, I'll Wait. tell you, I'll tell you later. Which one is this? this Let me is, look at his profile. Okay. Wait. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. this guy is a good yeah. dude. Yeah. 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 Good dude. Yes. yeah. You're not a creeper at all. No, no. So all the ladies at Catholic Twitter, yeah. just say hi. Have a conversation Say, say hi to SD Catholic on yeah, Twitter. Right. He is a good dude. He is a good dude. He's really funny. <laughs> and uh, he, I mean, <laughs> so, hey, and if you feel the need to slide into the DMs, go for it. Hey, you know, good things can happen. I'm just do so with respect and charity. But I'm just yeah, feeling absolutely. moved by the Holy Spirit right now. Mm-hmm. There you, you know? go. Let, let's uh, <laughs> let, let's use the clout for good again. Amen. All right, I uh, think that's enough with that tweet. <laughs> he's gonna kill us. <laughs> he's going to kill us. All right. Ah, uh, uh, this is from where is it? There you go. It's from a little thread discussion. This is from Angela uh, Pancella at a mm-hmm. Pancella. This is I just found this so amazing. In St. Louis, Missouri, Cardinal Ritter desegregated Catholic schools in 1947. Right parents said they were going to take him to court. He had a letter read out in all the churches one Sunday to say anyone who took part in the suit would face excommunication. Oh. And I was just like, yeah, boy. Yeah, boy. <laughs> Do that thing. Uh, this is why... The church. This is why bishops have powers in these areas because he was doing something that was controversial, obviously at the time, right? But was a just not thing to so do. respectful of the separation of church and state. <laughs> but I was just like, that's what you sound like when you talk about that. Okay, by the way. thank you. Uh, not you, just oh, the the, the, the universal. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I was just really impressed, and I read the article. It was very impressive. Like he. He threatened it. He's like, yeah, if you're, if you are against this, honestly, you are like, you're by, by participating in the suit, you're making a public declaration that you are against the church's teaching. Yeah. And therefore you're going to face excommunication. I mean, there's a little part of me that says, you know, hey, bishops, uh, you, you, you got this. There are some power. other issues as well. You this got, you, and other you, ones. You, you right? got this power to do this. Um, but I, I thought what a beautiful witness though. Um, what a really beautiful witness of a bishop who, I mean, and even if I understand things, if I, I mean, I don't know my American history so well, but that seems very early on in desegregation. Sure, uh, yeah. So that's count. That's against the grain, and what a courageous thing to do! What an amazing. I don't know. I just thought this is really cool and a little yeah. interesting historical fact that I didn't know about at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you know. Like a lot of things in the church, church filled with members who are sinners and saints, um, the, the church has had some really beautiful and powerful and good moments when it comes to uh, racism uh, in the new world, and also some disappointing moments and sad and flat out evil moments as mm-hmm. well. I was, um, uh, my priest's small group that I meet with, 
uh, is full of different guys. And one of the older guys was telling me about uh, a classmate of his who was uh, in a southern diocese and uh, that one of their parishes in this diocese um, had uh, separate spots, uh, had seats reserved in the back mm-hmm. for, um, you know, the signs that reserved for blacks. And then also certain spots reserved only for blacks at the communion rail. Wow. Like, actually, this was a real thing that happened. But also, if you look at at the history of the church in the West with this, you have some um, very early on in colonization, you have uh, Franciscans speaking out against the treatment of indigenous peoples as well Mm -hmm. and speaking powerfully about this. Mm -hmm. And you also have some theologians trying to... um, find a a theological argument for colonization as well you know you've got you've got this mix and um it's 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 a difficult thing to approach and there's been you know members of the church have done this very you know well and nobly and ones that haven't Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean the thing is with this like excommunication thing it's really just stating the obvious Mm -hmm. that if you refuse to believe that you know one, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. You know, two, all the baptized are a new creation in Christ. That we're all part of one body. If you're if you're refusing to acknowledge that, you are separating yourself from the church. Right. And a good father will will warn you about this. Exactly. So it's it's a yeah, it's a controversial and extreme move in a certain sense. But in a certain sense, it's not. In mm-hmm. a certain sense, this is the this is what a bishop's job is. And yeah. being a father, uh, being a father for a diocese, that's not easy. But the fact that he was willing to do this shows that he's willing to do you know do the right thing and like i mean he's he could never say like if you don't believe in desegregated schools you're excommunicated because to excommunicate you need you need something externally manifest to to do that so that's why he used the lawsuit right he knew there were other people who internally didn't agree with this and who Mm -hmm. even like were very angry and opposed to it or if you're a part of the protest or whatever that's a little different but a a legal lawsuit is like a, a very forceful action that can really uh, that that forces his hand a bit, and I I just I think that's important to all he's recognized with excommunication as well. We we people use that term too loosely sometimes to think mm-hmm. that oh a bishop can just do it willy nilly whenever he feels like it. No, there needs to be something. Um, there needs to be some sort of external public manifestation for a bishop to use that authority. And the thing is, there is actually a lot of opportunities for a bishop to exercise the auditory with ex- externally manifest things. And mm-hmm. it could be used for justice for a lot more things. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. This one is from, I've got, I've got a bone to pick with, with Ed Condon at Kenan Lawyered, uh, because I think he's, he's really messed up here. He's, he's uh, failed in Christian charity. And uh, his tweet is the inability to rest is the first sign of a disordered soul. Mm-hmm. The inability to rest is the first sign of a disordered soul. Now, Harrison, when a Christian um, sees a fault in another, uh, how should they go about that? Oh, are you saying that he's calling you up publicly? Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm not happy about this. Like, Ed, you could have just, like, talked to me. You've got my cell phone. <sighs> okay. You didn't have to put me on blast like this, and I'm, I'm hurt. H- have you considered um, that he was outing himself? Uh, you know what? No, because, uh, you know, while, while science has uh, proven that the earth revolves around the sun, in a certain spiritual sense, uh, everything revolves around me. Okay. So it's <laughs> obviously sure. about me. Okay, I wanted to make sure. <laughs> okay, but okay. let's talk about this. because yeah, this, yeah. this is actually <laughs> really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what do you do when you're by yourself with yourself? Right. That is a very telling thing, and uh, something that I do struggle with is like when I'm when I'm tired, when I'm exhausted, when I have a when I have a time to rest or for leisure. A lot of times I struggle. I don't know what to do with myself because I'm not working. I'm not doing this thing. I'm not doing that thing. And it is it is a good sign that like okay, there's something going on that uh, you need to work on. So it's very true. I, I agree with the um, content of the tweets, but I just feel like you know um, sometimes these lawyers are more concerned about the law than they are you know charity. Um, so, yeah, I'd do better. <laughs> He's going to hate you so much. Uh, Ed will always love me. <laughs> as long as we keep doing the Spicy Nugs podcast, he will always love me. There you go. Uh, well, someone has to edit them. That's true. And get to work on those. So um, Yeah, yikes. Mm. Um, talk about putting people on blast on, in public. Um, 
Yeah. So, no, I... Come on, Mr. Leisure, tell us about this. Well, Ed knows um, my position on leisure, and he's uh, even publicly fought against it sometimes. <laughs> but he actually mentioned a few weeks ago on their Editor's Room podcast the importance and need for leisure. Yes, and how the famous not, Editor's Room podcast. Yes, uh, and how he needs leisure and, and so on and so forth. And I was just like, aha, aha. And... <laughs> Uh, he's right though, because like, and it's and like, it's funny because I talk about leisure, but I recognize I can be bad about it too, right? Mm-hmm. Or doing the things that are actually leisurely, like prayer. Sometimes, I'll be frank. Like there are times when I don't want to pray, right? Right? Because I'm a sinner, folks. Guess what? And even priests, there are days they just want to pray because they've said five masses that day, and the last thing they want to do is go sit for an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Guess what? This right. is just the reality we, of priesthood. Sometimes. We end up treating both. I mean, it's yeah. a temptation for all of us. We end up treating both the mass yeah. and prayer as work. Yeah, I say that, but I mean, in like, a certain sense, and I say yeah. that more but, like as sorry. a, you know, we recognize it and you work through it in prayer mm-hmm. eventually, right? You right, fight right, against, right, right, you work right. through this. We're all growing, right? But, um, but I've recognized like myself, I'm like yeah, I'm actually really bad at rest, and he's right. It is a disorder in the soul because we are created. Like creation culminates in a rest, right? In in, mm-hmm. in Genesis, uh, rest is the act of is the time where we can actually enter into reflection, into reflection and contemplation. It is the time to do the things that are have no real productive value, but are worth just doing for their own sake, like reading, mm-hmm. like praying, like liturgy, like spending time with family, doing waste. I think this is the hard. I think this is actually the hard thing about it. Our time is so crunched up sometimes, we can't accept the fact that it's okay to waste time. Yeah. And I don't mean this in like a lazy, like I'm going to lie on the couch all day and watch Netflix. Mm -hmm. Because that's not leisure. That's laziness, which is what I tend towards when I want to (laughs) rest. Um, But no, real leisure is okay with saying, do what? It's okay to play a four hour board game with the family and to not do anything else. Because yeah. I'm seeking my the good of my family for its own sake, and that's a good thing, and and I think that's where we need to kind of we need to kind of reclaim this, and we're just not habituated to it, and this is where being involved in the liturgical life of the church can really start to at least train us towards leisure. I'll give you I'll give you a quick example of, of something new where I've found a lot of true rest. It's on. Sunday afternoons, we have adoration in the parish now for one thirty, two thirty. For those people who kind of like, I don't want to go to Mass yet because I don't want to be part of a bigger crowd. Mm-hmm. I just want to kind of come pray privately for a little bit and sure. less people around. And I like, I honestly look forward to that hour every Sunday now. Like I, I have holy hours other times of the week too, obviously. But that holy hour in particular, it's at the end of all the work of the weekend of all the liturgies and all the confessions heard and the prepping of a homily and all that stuff and talking to people and everything. And it's a time to just sit with the Lord. And I don't know what it is, but I find that day and that hour very restful. And it's amazing. And that's how we can, how do you train yourself for rest? Just like start doing it liturgically. Mm, Interesting. I like that. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. I I deleted um, I deleted Twitter from my phone for the moment because I can't have it there, so I can always be distracted by it while I'm writing. <laughs> Speaking of leisure, yes, and work. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is from Brian Holdsworth at Brian Keepsworth. He says people always complain when I conflate modern art with modernism. Fulton Sheen is not impressed. There is no such thing as understanding art in any period apart from the philosophy of that period. Philosophy inspires art, and art reflects philosophy. Mm. So, Fulton Sheen's not wrong. He's got a point there. But I don't think he means it. I don't want to put here's, here's Here's the question. Well, there's a few things here. First, there is a great spectrum of modern art, and modern art and modernism aren't the same thing. Yes, they influence each other and can have impacts on how we understand art and stuff like that and, and, and how art can influence our understanding of philosophy. But they're not um, 
they can't be conflated into one another either. There is a, you know, he's saying they influence each other, but they're not each other. And modernism is said in many ways. Right. As is what you're saying. I was literally just listening to the modernism episode on the way up for one of my chapters in my book. I wanted to re rehash my memory a bit. And so that was episode 54, I think, if you want to check out our modernism episode. But um, I guess my question becomes, so then what was the philosophy like in the church in the early 20th century that promoted and produced such saccharine art? I'm sorry, but like a lot of the devotional cards from the early 20th century, like the the holy images, are are saccharine. Like they're just they're just overly sentimentalistic, mm-hmm. and aren't real art. Yeah. And so, what does that tell us about the philosophy and theology of that age in the church? Mm. Is this a question I'm putting out there? Just asking questions. I'm just asking questions. Yeah. So I have a. a, a different take on this it's interesting so uh you know there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion around quote unquote art in my country nowadays because we're you know there's the the great statue <laughs> debates of 2020 because mm-hmm. we can't be you know because this is just what's going on i think it's important to remember that yeah okay if you want to understand a work of art you do have to look at the intention of the artist of the philosophy of that period uh you have to be you know uh genuine about that and honest about that mm-hmm but also, art always speaks. Mm-hmm. Arts, like real art speaks a message. Like a lot of uh, modernist art, it's not about a message, it's about the individual. Right. It's a reflection of the artist, not a message greater than the artist, which is why a lot, I'm generalizing. Okay. You're making a face. Yeah. Well, just because a lot of modern art is more about, I find it's more about, well, yes, in that sense, like, because it, it's about technique, right? It, right? it doesn't care about form. It cares about what is technic- what is a very difficult the technically difficult thing to do. Like a lot of modern um, symphonies are very difficult keys to play on a clarinet in the right order. So it's technically incredibly difficult, but doesn't sound very good. Right. And and my, my greater point uh, with regards to this is that um, art speaks. Art has a message. And when we're talking about art and the common good, I'm kind of riffing a little bit off his tweet into a, a different topic. But... Uh, a message for one time may not be appropriate for a different time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think truly great works of art are timeless. They speak eternal truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's different ways they can do that. But sometimes art is celebrating a certain thing or a certain culture, which may be antithetical to the common good or to the faith or to something like that. And we have to be, we have to acknowledge that as well. You can't just say because it's history, because it's art, because it reflects a certain philosophy. You also have to judge the message itself. And I think that's important to, to take into consideration as we're all talking about what kind of art should be left up, what kind of art should be torn down. Yeah, I'm actually um, I'm just looking it up right now. It's because like, I'll give you an example. This is for me one of my favorite examples of modern art that is done beautifully and well and reflects uh, a healthy relationship between good aspects of modernity with tradition. Mm-hmm. And that's Gaudi's Sagrada Familia in, in Barcelona. And in his homily at the consecration of the altar for the Sagrada Familia, um, have you, do you know what the Sagrada Familia is? No. Oh, oh, dude, you're in for a treat. This is going to be fun. I am, I am, I'm efforting this right now. Yeah, I know. Well, is it the church? Yeah. Whoa, look at this thing. Yeah. I, this is not helpful to people listening, but it is, it is an, it is a church. Yeah. It looks like it's out of some sort of fantasy realm. Yeah. So um, Pope Benedict, in his homily, he he chose, even though the church isn't done yet, it's still about 40 years away from being finished. And it mm-hmm. started in the early 20th century. Uh, Pope Benedict uses Gaudi's cathedral. He went there to consecrate the altar because he wanted to use it as a, as a piece of modern art that takes the Christian tradition seriously, but is rooted in the principles of modern architecture and of modern philosophies of art, but also in concert, in conversation with a tradition. And for me, like that's why I'm like, I, I just don't... Yes, they influence each other, but they're not... It, 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 we can't conflate the two either mm-hmm. because this doesn't... The, just because something is modern doesn't mean it's all bad. And even in heresies, 
Like modernism, which denies, for those who don't remember, denies mediation. It denies God's ability to act into the world. Even though modernism goes in a very wrong way. Sorry, I'm just looking at, I see Father Anthony's face as he's looking at these pictures. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> the inside does not look like the outside. <laughs> it's all. It's fascinating. It's super fascinating. Um, we need to lead a pilgrimage there one day because it's really amazing. I spent an okay. entire day there. There, it's it's the most beautiful. I'm sold. It's the most beautiful church I've ever seen. It's fascinating. But you know, even even in heresies, there is a good that is misdirected, and so it's important to not see it just as an enemy, but to see what is the good that they're trying to seek for, and like let's tease that out. So like. You know, yes, modernism is a very bad thing. <laughs> we did a whole episode talking yeah, yes. about its badness. <laughs> but it's, but those people who hold those positions, why are they holding them and what are they seeking? Mm-hmm. And when you start to ask those questions, you stop seeing the other thing as a boogeyman that's responsible for all the ills of the world and start dealing with the fundamental spiritual questions of things. Mm. So, because, yeah, modern art and modernism, I don't think they're conflating. I don't think they're meant to be conflated. Because of things like Gaudi's Sagrada Familia. Interesting. Yeah, so Sagrada Familia, I can't spell worth a dang, and I just tried it in Google, and it came up. So uh, you can check that out when you're done driving or running on your uh, treadmill or something. There we go. All right, Harrison, you know what? I really, there's a lot of there's a lot of difficulty in the world today. Mm-hmm. You know, these are unprecedented times in which we must all I've, I've never heard uh, realize that. that we're together in this. I've never heard that phrase before. So I wanted to talk about something a little bit more uplifting And so that's what we're going to do in Presbyteral Exhortations. Awesome. And now it is time for Presbyteral Exhortations. Oh, yes. Yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Yes, Yes, quite. Yes, quite. We're going to talk about hell. Whoa. We're talking about hell, Father Harrison. Whoa. <laughs> Eternal damnation. Okay, so uh, I was um, looking through my, my, my modest library, if you will, uh, and thinking about what are the things we need to talk about. And I, I picked up this lovely little book by, I don't know if you heard of him before, a Joseph Ratzinger. Who? A Joseph Ratzinger. I think he's Welsh, um, but oh, a pretty good theologian okay. from what I can tell. And he has this lovely little book just called Eschatology. And first, let's just be completely superficial. This book, Eschatology, it's the perfect size for a book, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's about 300 pages. It's it, it fits in your hand. It's just this is the when I think of like a book. This is what I think of. Right. Delightful. Okay. Um, and it's an early one of his works. And he just goes through all of eschatology, uh, the end time things, theology of death. Uh, he starts off with a whole biblical um, discussion about what's going on with this, heaven, hell, purgatory. And I'll slip it through uh, his little section he has on hell, purgatory, and heaven. And he, he gets to a point, which we're, we're going to try to get to by the end of this conversation, that I think really opens up the mystery of the cross, opens up the mystery of hope, opens up the mystery of the dark night of the soul. But before we get there, let's just talk about hell. So, Father Harrison, my first question for you. What is hell? It's bad. Yeah, good it job. Is, it is the place where one is eternally separated from God, from, mm-hmm. from or at least from the beatific vision, I should say, um, because God upholds all things in being. And so even if you're in hell, you're upheld by God in existence. Right. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 You've already you've already talked about some of the complexities I yeah. want to get okay, into. Okay. Good. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just it's the place of the damned. Right. And who goes to hell, Father Harrison? Um, the devil. People and who his... leave comments. People who give us two star reviews on uh, iTunes. And call... That's who goes those, to hell. Yeah. Those who leave the one star reviews and say the crunch is better. Um, sorry. Yeah. No. <laughs> We, I just, I want to clarify now, because we did get a review, because we, we've joked like this before yeah. about, like, we don't care how many stars you give our podcast or whatever, but someone thought we were being deadly serious and was very hurt by the fact that we called anyone who gives us, like, a one-star review a coward. So I'm not saying that. This is part of the joke, yes. okay? It's like, it's, it's, <laughs> anyway. it's almost that we have to explain. This is a joke, you know? Right. Uh, but anyways, um, but yeah. Um, yeah, so those who go to hell are, are the 
devil and his followers in, in from like the angels, the fallen angels are all mm-hmm. part there. And then anyone who uh, is by their own actions, which uh, are judged unworthy to be of heaven, who right. don't want to be saved, who, who deny God, who uh, do actions that are unrepentant of them, stuff like that. Exactly. And like there's this uh, something I have heard about but really never seen. So we're, we live in an interesting time in, in church history. Every time in church history is pretty interesting, in my opinion. Right. But um, you see a, a kind of a common understanding of recent church history where, you know, 60, 70 years ago, every homily was about hellfire and brimstone. Mm-hmm. And then we got beyond that and started teaching about God's love. Now, I have a feeling that both of those characterizations are are completely wrong. Um, now, there may have been more talk about hell in the past, but I strongly disagree, and this is what I was preaching about uh, last weekend, that for the last 50 years we've been talking about God's love. Because mm-hmm. if we have been authentically preaching about God's love, the church would be on fire. If we've been authentically preaching about God's love, people would have a deep understanding right. of the cross, of the sacraments, of mass, of social justice. Right. We were talking about love, but it wasn't God's love. Exactly. It was, like you mentioned before, this saccharine, uh, overly touchy-feely, love without content, love without the cross, mm-hmm. um, love without any real depth. Right. Because if you're really gonna, not love at all. Because if you're going to preach about love, hell has to become part of the conversation. Yeah. I want you to expand on that. Well, just... Because I said, yeah, and I feel like it's right, but oh. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, just love is a choice. It is an act mm-hmm. of the will. And so it's either saying, I choose you or I don't choose you. That love is offered, and then you have a choice to say yes or no to it. And hell mm-hmm. is the ultimate consequence. Because if God's infinite, then you're making, in the end, a real everlasting determining choice about who you, whether you want to serve God or not. And so hell is a consequence of love because God's not going to force himself, force us down there. People choose to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there is something true that can be said that I don't think a lot of us take hell seriously. No, and I think I we agree. do so in, I, we do so in two ways. You know, the one more obvious way is it's something that's never talked about, uh, never really spoken of. There's no worry about it in the sense that there's almost a, um, you know, I'm a decent person. I'm a good person. Uh, I can't imagine God sending me to hell, right. right? That's a very unserious way to think about hell. But there's also another kind that um, I think is an unserious way of thinking about hell. And it goes something like this. There is this anxiety and fear that um, if I screw up, if I don't push the right buttons, if I don't pull the right levers, now I'll be, boom, sent to hell. Right. Like there's this fear, like I will, you know, commit some kind of mortal sin I'll either take the God, God's name in vain or commit self-abuse, and then I'll walk outside, get hit by a bus, and go straight to hell. And I also think that's a very unserious way mm-hmm. about thinking about hell. Well, it means we don't understand who God is. Right. And, and that one's tougher because there's a little bit of truth in that, right. in the sense that mortal sin is a complete rejection of God. It cuts us off from God. We, we pull ourselves away from God. In a certain sense, God is still with us because he holds our existence in being. He calls us back to repentance. We don't become unbaptized because of this. But there is a real severing there because you said no to God in a radical way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you say no to God in a radical way by the end of your life, yeah, that's not going to get you to heaven, obviously. But there's a, there's a force for the trees thing kind of going on here where there's a, an inherent distrust of God, a lack of faith. That God wants to test us, not in a way of revealing ourselves to us so that we might turn back to him, but God wants us, wants to test us in a way to trick us, to make us fail. That God isn't in control. That really it's just my actions. Right. And that's a very unserious way to look at, one, God's love, and, and two, hell. So I think those are both kind of errors that are going on. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. I have nothing to say. Yeah. You're right. Uh, but yeah, so you, you mentioned it, and let's open this up a little bit more, that really if you're going to talk about hell, and if you talk about salvation as, as well, you have to talk about freedom. Right. Because there is, yes, in a certain sense, hell is a punishment for the wicked. That's an accurate thing to say. Mm-hmm. But if you open that up a little bit more, 
it is about our choice whether or not to accept or to reject God. But we have to understand how our freedom works. Uh, Two things. God gives us the grace and the freedom to say yes to him. Mm -hmm. And along with that, a way to say no. So it's not, it's a hard thing to uh, distinguish that yes, God, you know, in a radical way takes our personal freedom seriously, but also that freedom isn't something that's completely our own Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. That God empowers our freedom by his grace. Right. Um, So like, this is, this is something that sometimes Catholics mess up a little bit. there's a sense that like God gives us a choice and we're free to say yes or no. It's not quite that. Yes, God gives us a choice, but he also gives us the grace to say yes. Right. Which really makes the no all the more radical. Right. 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 So you're rejecting the grace to say yes and even rejecting the, f- the grace that gives you the freedom to say yes, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is where Ratzinger talks about this kind of freedom. The ascent to such love need not be created by man. This is not something which he achieves by his own power. So this is Ratzinger saying that God gives you the grace to, he gives you the grace that is the freedom to say yes. And yet, the freedom to resist the creation of that ascent, the freedom to not accept one's own, this freedom remains. So in a radical way, we still have the freedom to say no. Mm -hmm. The true uh, Christ descends into hell and suffers it in all his emptiness, but he does not, for all that, treat man as an immature being deprived of the final analysis of any responsibility for his own destiny. So he's saying two things here, that Christ continues to respect our freedom. This is getting to a, a, a salvation point, a soteriology mm-hmm. point. There is an idea, and you find it in Protestant circles and in uh, Catholic circles as well at times, that because Christ has said yes for us, right? He has accepted the Father's will. He freely accepts the cross. That we have now no choice in the matter. Either we're saved or not. But Christ still respects our freedom in a radical way. And the reason why this is so important is that so often we do not take our lives seriously. And we do this in all kinds of ways. We, whenever we treat uh, prayer as optional, whenever we treat the holy sacrifice of the mass as optional, when we treat, you know, uh, treating our neighbor with love as optional, we're not taking our lives seriously. Because all these things will, will have eternal consequences. And I don't say that to make people anxious or to freak out, but God will treat you seriously. You need to treat your life seriously too. And remembering this and hearing about this is a reminder to do just that. And I don't think it's the only way we should remind people, Mm -hmm. but this is a very important thing. It's a very helpful thing to preach about hell, to remind us that, yeah, our life is super serious right now. Yeah. That we only have this time. And yes, God will be with us and give us all the grace we need to, to, to be sanctified, um, to be drawn up into heaven. But uh, we have to take our part seriously as well. Yeah, it's, if, again, kind of playing off what I was saying earlier, if love is really that serious, I mean, I guess the way I look at it is, imagine if you're married mm-hmm. and you you didn't care, really, about the promises and vows you made to your spouse. You're like, yeah, some days I'll be faithful to her, some days I won't. Who cares? <laughs> Your marriage is, yeah. like, this is, I actually like using the marriage analogy a lot because I think it really yeah. hits these points home because it, it is the most concrete way we have to understanding our relationship with God. So if, if, if that's the way, if you can't do that in a marriage, why do we do this with God? Mm-hmm. Right? And yet we do it all the time. Like yeah. all the time because we are sinners who seem to like to go back to the we're like a dog that likes to go back to the vomit. You know, it's, it's, we just like, oh, this, this sin destroys me. But man, I bet you this time it'll be good. <laughs> right? Right. But so we, I think part of it is we've been foiled by Satan to want to see that it, these questions don't really matter. But 
I want to put this. I think this is why Lives of the Saints is so important. Because they really make manifest the radicalness of love. Mm-hmm. And that if we really want to be with God, we have to love as they loved. Because they understood the seriousness of this. And they knew the consequence. If eternity is real, and it, it's, I'll be honest, like it's almost like an existential question that hangs on my head constantly. Mm. If eternity is real, then why am I still such a sinner? Not in terms of like something I work on my own, but like why am I not responding to the grace? Because it's always being offered. Right. It's mm-hmm. always being offered. Why am I resisting it? And it's because deep down, I actually want the sin. Yeah, there, and this is a tough thing to admit that we like to think that we always hate sin. Yeah. The truth of the matter is that we are often attached to that yeah. sin. And that's why the purification process, the, the repenting is so painful. Not because God hurts us, but because being torn away from something we're so attached to is a painful thing. Yeah. And yeah. and and it's You see, this is why it's interesting the way you mentioned my brain I've been off in space a little bit in my head here because <laughs> It's working through something here, this idea that God still gives us the freedom to say no on our own power, but to say mm-hmm. yes to him, we need his grace, right? And yeah. and I think the reason for that is, is because of the fallen world when Adam and Eve fell, man rooted his will in himself. It's no longer rooted in grace, and so it's no longer rooted in God, and so it needs God to give us the help to actually choose him. But without him, there's only one thing we can choose, which mm-hmm. is... To oppose him. Right. We, we, we are stuck in our original sin, which is a rebellion. And so, and that's always at play in every sin. And we need to just, and it's hard. Like, I wish I had a magic, again, I wish I had a magic formula that said, do these five things and you will be a saint. It, lo- but love is never packaged that way, right? And I think it's, and I, this is why I also think, like, I think talk about hell, it's interesting. You, if we talk about hell and love in the same sentence, it actually fixes the errors of the last century of preaching. Yes. Right? Yes. It's like, it's where I'm not preaching out of fear, nor am I preaching out of a lack of responsibility. But both these things bring freedom to its core, to it, to its heart. And um, so I just, we need to recognize I actually want this. I want my laziness. Mm-hmm. I want my sloth. I want my, you know, whatever sins we have. I want my greed. Right. I want my jealousy. I want my lust. Whatever it is. Every time we sin, that we're saying, I choose this over God. Mm-hmm. And we gotta like repent to that. <laughs> yeah, and it's when you realize because that's 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 encountering your deep poverty. Yeah. That by yourself, without God, indeed you want these things. Maybe not all of you, maybe not all the time, right. but there's a real part of you that does. Yes. Okay. So it's important to take sin and hell seriously. And he, he goes on, a, a, I think it's an important um, philosophical uh, journey, which I'm going to summarize real quick. So uh, sin, or I say evil is the negation of the good. Or the right? absence uh, of goodness. Or, absence, yeah, there yeah, we go. Absence yeah, of yeah. the good, right? So it's, it's this idea that, you know, uh, evil isn't a real thing right? in the sense that it's, all evil can be is a twisting right. or a corruption of right, the good. Right. Evil's parasitical. It needs goodness right. to be. Right. So the reason why, you know, um, so uh, our podcast is good, right? Mm-hmm. Why are other podcasts bad? They're, because they're a corruption right. of the pure form of podcast that is clearly speaking. Right. Exactly. I mean, duh. Okay, cool. But there's a, a strain in Christianity that, that takes this evil as negation too far, mm-hmm. whereas you almost see evil as, as nothing, where it kind of loses a kind of its intensity, right? And to, to heal this, to, to fix this, Ratzinger goes to, shockingly, the cross. And it's a really powerful uh, statement from him. That the cross throws light upon our theme from two directions. First... It teaches us that God himself suffered and died. Evil is not then something unreal for him. For the God who is love, hatred is not nothing. He overcomes evil, but not by some dialectic of universal reason 
which comes to transform all negations into affirmations. That's, that's all that philosophical stuff. God overcomes evil, not in a speculative Good Friday, but on a Good Friday which was most real. He himself entered into the distinctive freedom of sinners, and that freedom of sinners is like our will to choose evil, apart from God's grace, but went beyond it in that freedom of his own love, which descended willingly into the abyss. So two things there. Oops, I hit my mic. Two things there. He enters into, without participating in, that freedom to choose sin. Right? This right. is uh, Christ became sin for us. Right. But he also goes further, and he uses his, you know, his freedom as God to willingly accept this. So it's, it's a two-fold freedom sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think this is important when we think about that phrase, Christ descended into hell. Because so I think there's, there's two understandings of this. One is that Christ enters into uh, Sheol, the mm-hmm. place of the dead, where he goes to free um, those just souls that have died, bring them into heaven, right? Mm-hmm. There's that sense. But there's also the sense that he enters into hell in which he enters into God-forsakenness. Mm-hmm. He enters into that utter emptiness where the experience of God is not there. So there's two ways he enters into it. And Ratzinger's saying, like, this wasn't a theory, right? This wasn't a philosophy that the God of love experienced evil, which is a really crazy thing, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so that's important to remember that Christ took hell and sin very seriously, and so must we. Yeah, he actually... But he didn't just... Yeah, he didn't just take it seriously. He didn't say, this is just the consequence. He's saying, I'm actually going to live the consequence. Yeah. Right. He enters into it deeply and defeats it by that freedom, by that love. Right. And he ends up transforming that darkness. Okay, so this so, is the part I actually wanted to get to. Okay, quickly, quickly. Please. So, this is very interesting to me for a few reasons. Now, because um, mm-hmm. do you know who else this sounds like? Who? Whomst? Theo- theologically. Whomst? Balthazar. Well, that yes, it is. Right? This is this is the theology <laughs> yeah. of Holy Saturday. Like I was, I was like kind of people can't see it obviously, but I was nodding as he was kind of talking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is what Balthazar talks about. This is the drama of the cross that God in the incarnation allows these two freedoms to enter because He takes on humanity to actually enter into the domain of evil, and His and it kind of like the the church fathers like to use the incarnation to, as a phrase like a sneak attack so that god can enter into the depths of its domain in total powerlessness to to experience the totalness of god forsakenness and thereby to overcome it by his powerlessness mm-hmm. right this is like this is and i think that's actually very hopeful it is it is and i'm going to hopefully touch on that in this this next part yeah because, okay, there, a question kind of arises from this. God has shown us this deep love that he has by entering into the, the, the dark night of sin, the dark night of death, the dark night of hell. Mm-hmm. But that experience of love is not something that we are cut off from. It's not something we just see from afar. Mm-hmm. But for the saint, it's something that Christ invites us to enter into. Christ invites us to enter into this dark night because even though it's still dark, even though it's still painful, even though all that's, that experience is still real, Christ has transformed it into love. And so he says, um, where are you? Thus, the history of holiness, which Hagiology, Hege, uh, Stories of the Saints, offers us, and notably in the course of recent centuries, in John of the Cross, in Carmelite piety in general, and in that of Therese of the Sioux in particular, hell has taken on a completely new meaning and form. For the saints, hell is not so much a threat to be hurled at other people, but a challenge to oneself. It is a challenge to suffer in that dark night of faith, to experience communion with Christ in solidarity with his descent into the night. One draws near to the Lord's radiance by sharing in his darkness. One serves the salvation of the world by leaving one's own salvation behind for the sake of others. 
Now, that last little part of that sentence, leaving one's own salvation behind, I think that has to be understood in the sense that you leave the experience of salvation behind. Right, or, or it's, it's kind of like Paul's, St. Paul's sense, right? I would prefer to be damned so that others might be saved. Right. So what's going on here is that for the saint, they experience, in a sense, something of that hell that Christ entered into. Mm-hmm. That they're not worried about threatening other people with hell. They know deeply its realities, but they, they because of Christ, enter into that transforming action of Christ, that the dark night is no longer so dark, that indeed it, it still feels dark, but that becomes the deepest expression of love. You're entering into Christ's deepest expression of love and transforming it for yourself and for the world because you're united to Christ. And I think one of the takeaways from this is for us that it's, it, it should be an experience of hope for us because we're all going to experience darkness. We're all going to experience a feeling of separation from God, but that shouldn't make us hopeless. Right. Indeed, it should give us hope because it's in those moments when we cannot feel Christ that mystically we're closest to him because we're closest to his action of love for us. Right. I'm just trying to find. So this is kidding home. I can't find it. I thought we did it earlier on in the show. Um, man, this is Mother Teresa. Yes, exactly. Right? I was thinking about her. Because this explains the experience of Mother Teresa. Right. This is. I'm just trying to find the episode that we did it in. Uh, I can't find it. I, okay. Why do you think of yeah. that? Or... But, but I was just going to say quickly then. Just that this yeah. is the point though. It, it first it shows. Yeah, there's hope. Like there is no place of darkness that God cannot be. Mm-hmm. because of this right but secondly this is and i think this is why it's only in these modern saints who kind of go through hell themselves it's not this is not dark Teresa's darkness was not the dark night of purification she was already at the heights of mystical life at, before she died mm-hmm. this was an added stage that mother Teresa ad, like takes and then goes to the extreme with almost mm-hmm. um they're entering into the cross and into hell but it's it, it, but it's it's a it's a solidarity though too, right? Mm-hmm. It's saying, I'm entering into this for you and with you, who I whom I serve. Your hell is my hell, so that you can see that Christ, the light, is actually in this place of darkness. Mm-hmm. So I can bring you out of it, right? This is right. this is the work. This is and that. But this has profound ecclesiological implications on the church as Christ's body. If the body has to go where Christ has gone, right? Just simple. Yeah. And we have to take that seriously. Sorry. And, yeah. and so, no, it's perfect. Yeah. And, and so one last uh, quote too, because this, this entering into this, this darkness, and it, as a side note, it's also difficult because we're, we are using hell in, in certain different uh, ways mm-hmm. and we're using night and all these images are powerful images. Um, but you have to remember how you're using them when you're using them. But that entering into that night with Christ, entering into the cross deeply, that's not something that the saints do out of strength or out of their own will. And Ratzinger says, such and the hope that comes from it, okay? Such hope cannot, however, be a self-willed assertion. It must place its petition into the hands of the Lord and leave it there. It's an entering into our own emptiness, Mm -hmm. our own poverty, where we, you know, in the deepest sense, give it to the Lord. And so it's a participation that in a sense we choose, but we only are able to choose that through grace. Right. So it was fascinating just reading that because he's talking about hell in the more, in in the sense that we more commonly understand it, but also he draws out this mystical understanding of the cross of uh of darkness of of hope in the darkness that i think is very powerful and practical for us mm-hmm. so i hope it made some sense <laughs> i would just kind of quickly add with all of that is it's i think these ideas of hell as we're talking about them, are developing in the church today for a particular reason, because there mm. is a particular darkness in in the world and in people's experience. Like it's very existentialistic, right? It, it's, it's just it's, and I think God is kind of calling the church into a 
deeper conformity with himself. Like uh, Romano Guardini talks about in the end of the modern world, that this is going to be the time of some of the greatest saints, but not because of of um, great feats, but because of the grace of participation in Christ's cross. And I think like what you're talking about, this is graced, right? This is offered. Mm-hmm. So it means, and it's participated. So it's not just I'm offering this up to Jesus, but rather Jesus, I'm giving this into your descent. Like I'm like reuniting this with your descent into the into hell. I'm reuniting this with your cross. Like in a way I'm living, I'm letting you mystically live out that reality in me right now. And I'm willingly going to enter into that. Mm-hmm. But that's graced and that's given by God. Sometimes some people he won't give that to, and that's okay. And some people he will Yeah, for the mm-hmm. good of the church in the world. But I think generally more and more, a lot of people have some sense of experience of this, but it's about seeing like, yeah, you're actually, darkness is not a place of loneliness because we're actually, we're never alone. Christ is really always there. I mean, you got to be careful with that because like, I, I don't know, I'm more, I'm very, hope is not a theological virtue I struggle with. Um, but the danger with that is then you don't, you can sometimes just not, oh yeah, well, God, Christ is there with all things. And so you have to balance it out. Yeah, hope has to be balanced out with love in order to ensure it doesn't become overconfident in grace. Right. And that's that's why the the deeper meditation on the cross gives uh, a solid foundation to hope. Yeah. And and in, and indeed, not I don't think many of us will experience what Teresa of Lisieux experienced at the end of her life, what um, Teresa of Calcutta experienced for years and years. But two things. One, knowing that mm-hmm. they went through that. One explains things for us and that's helpful. But two gives us hope that Christ indeed does conquer all things in love. And three, yeah, we'll experience this in different senses and in different ways. We'll experience it in a sense as we struggle with our own sin. We'll experience it in a sense when we go through times of desolation. It's not the same thing, but there is an analogy there that is yeah. not unreal. Yeah. And Harrison, like all things, I was worried we weren't going to have enough content and we went over time again. There we go. Because all this stuff is fascinating and wonderful. Okay. Cool. So, thank you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies, too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me throwing away chipped glasses in complete freedom. I thought uh, they were going to find you thrown into the pits of, of, of darkness and hell in, in union with the suffering souls that you're serving. That would be amazing. If that's going on, then my spiritual life is rocking. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Fr Harrison. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Peace. God bless. There we go.